Hold on and buckle up. You're about to ride into a place of theological sanity with Appalachian Anglican. Ecclesia Appalachia Missio Mundi. And welcome back to Appalachian Anglican. I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl. And we're back again here to talk about kenosis. Kenosis. Not Obi-Wan kenosis. Oh my gosh. But yeah, this is a lot, a lot of Star Wars when you uh, go to look up some of this stuff. Does it auto-populate Obi-Wan Kenobi when you type in kenosis? No, in stop. The I thought engine? about that today. When I was thinking about kenosis, I'm like... Obi-Wan Kenobi? No. Obi-Wan Kenosis. No, it's like, no, that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I was uh, on my Twitter, now known as X feed, the other day. I noticed there was a whole lot of chatter going on about the eternal submission of the Son to the Father in the relationship of the persons within the Godhead. And I thought one, I thought that was curious, like, what's going on with that? Why is that kind of resurging right now? And then somebody brought up kenosis. And then I thought, wow, it looks like we may be responding to some of those trends on the Anglican uh, Twitterverse, which is not the case. We actually have on our dry erase board on the wall over there, our 10 topics. And kenosis is on that list as one of the things that we plan on discussing. And we've got, some of those are going to be more than one topic probably, but we want to uh, really hit kenosis kicking off this new season because I want to help, hopefully, set trajectory here so that we're not stuck with a misunderstanding of Christ's incarnation. Because we did that bonus episode at Christmas, and this seems like the next logical progressive step, especially when we look at the other things that we will be discussing that we're not going to mention right now. you got to tune back in next week. But... Um, the kenosis, I, I almost want to say theory, because the, the doctrine of kenosis and the theory associated with it really started to change about 130 years ago. So I won't say it was consistent through Christian history, but once the doctrine is established via the creeds and the councils, it's consistent, relatively speaking, through history. There's not a whole lot of changes in it up until... Luke's Mundi with Charles Gore, Bishop Gore. And uh, he is trying to give a, a, a more, how can we say it? I want to say it so it adequately represents the vast amount of material that he worked on and edited. He, he, he wants to, to explain the kenosis, wants to explain the incarnation in light of historical text criticism. For example, in the Gospels, Jesus is having a discussion with the Pharisees when he references David eating the showbread in the days of Abiathar. Well, the problem is that when you go back to that story in the Old Testament, Abiathar is not the high priest when David eats the showbread. And so there's a discrepancy between the Old Testament text and the words of the Lord. And higher text critics, especially at that time, were saying, well, here's an example of how Matthew's source material was incorrect 
because he's putting words in Jesus's mouth because most of them didn't believe that Jesus actually spoke uh, what he said or that, or that he did say something, but the, the uh, gospel writers were very elastic in their rendering of his Aramaic or Hebrew into Greek when they would write their gospel. Point being that there is a, 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 a discrepancy and the, and the text critics point that out. And so how is it, and Gore uh, and, and the guys with him, they approach that from the perspective that Jesus did say those things. So even though he is factually in error, how can they explain that theologically? How could Jesus be theologically, how could he be factually wrong about something if he was God? And so the answer is this kenosis theory lifted from Philippians 2, where Paul says that though he was in the form of God, right, morphe, he's in the form of God. Um, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Yes, and that word emptied there is where we get the word kenosis. And it's the, the idea of pouring something out. He's emptying himself, not of divine nature. And Gore's quick to point that out. The guy, the, the irony is that when he's writing about this stuff in the late 1800s and, and uh, pulling together his, um, maybe 1900, 1910. Anyway, when he's pulling together his, uh, his fellows to write this, the, the Luke's Mundi and some other things, and he's editing their work, he's, he comes off as, for that era as a liberal. But in 1930, when the Lambeth Conference in England said that uh, artificial contraception was okay, he stood against it. So he came off as a conservative. So Gore is an interesting character, and the guy's got a ton of material that is just phenomenal reading for lots of reasons. And some of it, like we're pointing out here with the kenosis, uh, I, I don't know, and, and this is, this is my, just my opinion here, I don't know if he would still advocate for it, seeing the fallout from it. And the way that postmodern hermeneutics has come back around and taken these ideas in ways that he would, I mean, if the man opposed artificial contraception, he'd be, he'd be aghast at the Jesus seminar and some of this other stuff that's come back around since then, uh, much, much later than even he lived. But the self-emptying and the theory is that he does, Christ does not empty himself of his divine nature, but he empties himself of divine prerogative. What's the difference between his divine nature and his divine prerogative? Uh, I'll give a, I'll give a, a simple example that is not sufficient, but is sufficient enough. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's the shamrocks for the Trinity with St. Patrick, although he probably didn't do that. Uh, Cause you know, have you seen that video? That, that, the, oh, Patrick. Yeah. Yeah. That one. Have you seen that one where they talk about how all the examples yeah, are? Yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> right. So this example is not complete, but it's sufficient enough. Um, think of an eclipse that when the sun is blocked by the moon, the sun is still there. It's still shining. It's still present. But the fullness of its light is not hitting where the moon is eclipsing it. Not perfect, but it's a picture. So the nature of God in the person of the word, the second person of the Trinity is still fully 100% present, but in order for God to interact with the world via the incarnation as the incarnate 
Jesus of Nazareth, there has to be a mitigation of his divine power, of his prerogatives. Otherwise, heaven and earth would flee from his face. And so, the effect, one of the effects of Jesus being incarnate, the word being incarnate, is not only the, the lack of omniscience, or say the lack of omnipresence. He's not everywhere physically when he's walking around Galilee. Well, that's, that's one of the effects. The other effects are he gets tired, he gets thirsty, he gets hungry, right? Logically then, following this vein of thought, that would also mean he is susceptible to misunderstanding. And he, he would only be able to know things as they were known by the culture and the time in which he lived. And so you can see how this idea gets picked up and carried on through later generations. So now we get a feminist hermeneutic that says that Jesus was anti-women or that he was flirting with a woman at the well or, um, or that he was a bigot, you know, or he was something, whatever, whatever kind of ideology is presently promulgated is retroed back upon the Lord Jesus. And that's done typically by those theologians to take the things that he says and say they no longer apply. That's where this idea of kenosis theory, there's not one guy behind it, but I mentioned Gore because if you want to get a, a good idea of how some of this starts to develop for all the good that he writes about and tries to explain, I'd recommend reading him, but you can see how this spills out in a bunch of other ways. The kenosis does not mean all of that, even though that's the way it's been taken. And so we want to, we want to unpack what does it mean that he being in the form of God did not consider it himself equal to God, but took upon himself the form of a servant. He empties himself. What does that mean? How does that, how does the divine word and the human man, the nature, uh, how is there, um, how is there one person of Christ? Because there's one person with two natures. Mm -hmm. And that's what we kind of, we got to kind of kick that around a little bit. Knowing that we're, you know, if this is an hour long, and we don't know that it will be at this point, if it is that long, we're only touching the surface. But really what we want to do is steer people away from this faulty concept of the kenosis that says that Jesus could be wrong. And we'll, we'll get into the theological reasons why, even if we grant kenosis as it's under, as it was understood by that theory, does not mean that he would be subject to misunderstanding either. But we want to unpack some of that, kick that around. Yeah, I think it's interesting you're hitting at a lot of the presuppositions coming into this discussion. So like even the one that you 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 started out mentioning was the presupposition was, well, scripture's right. How 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 do we make sense of what Jesus said? Versus you can add other layers of presuppositions onto that. Well, we know that scripture is right, and we know Jesus wasn't wrong that puts you at a different destination as far as theologizing with that particular text that you mentioned. So what, what is happening here? If Jesus can't be wrong, right. And we know the scripture's right. How do we work from there? Because especially when we get into textual criticism, they don't usually give the, the text that kind of respect. Many times what you see is they wiggle out of that, like, well, they were wrong when they interpreted or they were mm -hmm. wrong in how maybe it's gotten to us. There's, they, they start looking at different perspectives on that. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I think with that Matthew passage, you know, uh, David, Shobred, Abiathar, etc. I don't, I don't think it's error. Um, I think it's probably something akin to Matthew's account of Legion, where there's two demoniacs and not one. Mm-hmm. We know that it was a rabbinic practice to put together two different accounts or two different events into one story, because uh, while the general story that they're telling may be the blending of two different uh, factual accounts. The story they're telling is drawing from those two accounts and they do it in such a way that you know they're doing it. So they're not, they're not making up something out of thin air. They're telling a story to emphasize a point. And so my guess, because in, the, in that account, Matthew doesn't record that the Pharisees or anybody argues with him about it. Nobody says, hey, you're misquoting that. Which they would have. They would have. Uh, so... Uh, and as far as I know, I don't think there's anything really in history. Now, you, the fathers will talk about some of this stuff, but there's nothing in history that that's pointed to in the past to say, see how inaccurate the text is. You'll get that today with modern text critics. But Yeah, that's more, more so what I was referring yeah, to. Yeah, not in history. And so my, my suspicion, uh, my guess, is that those two are being put together by the Lord because he's pulling from different themes in relation to both to address the immediate topic that he's having the argument about. Because in Matthew, like I said, in Matthew's account, he has two demons, two demoniac men in the Legion account, whereas in Mark and Luke, it's just one guy. And so that's not, that's really difficult for people who are trying to read the four gospels as historical contemporary biographies. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. They, they, don't, they don't read, uh, they don't even read chronologically. The one that's probably the most chronological is Luke because he says that's what he's doing. And he's doing that in contrast to the others that are not an orderly account. So th- that would take us into, you know, the whole nature of, of how scripture was composed and written. But we have to, we, we can look at that and then, and work from that into the kenosis. Because Christ is 100% God and 100% man right now, always has been. He's not mitigating his divine nature and how he conducts himself to be both divine and human while he's conducting himself on the earth. I realize there's a lot of redundancy there, but I'm trying to double down on the point. How he does that is so significant and that significance is principally mystery. It's a sacramental act. Now we can get into some of the theological clarity you know, to take away unnecessary mystery uh, because unnecessary mystery breeds bad speculation. Holy mystery fosters worship and adoration. So let me, let me explain that a little bit more. It would be improper to attribute the, the attributes of human nature to deity and to attribute the attributes of deity to human nature. So for example, when Jesus is doing something, there are times when he's doing it as God. It's, it, it's a divine act of power. And there are other things that he does that are clearly um, human acts, right? And we can see this play out through the whole of his ministry. And one of the, one of the biggest examples, and this would take us back into monothletism, but one of the biggest examples is in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying and he starts to sweat blood. Well, divine nature doesn't get anxious. And he says his soul is troubled to the point of death. 
And then in his prayer, it's, Father, not my will, but yours. Well, when is his will ever separated from the will of the Father? When do they disagree? Well, they don't. What's happening there, right? So we, we could go into to unpack more of that relationship as well, com- contrasting that Gethsemane event in Matthew, Mark, and Luke with the statements in John's gospel about his will and the Father's will. We, we, could, we, could, we could do that, but I point, I bring those out as an initial um, statement to say, look at, the, look at what's going on here, because that ha- helps us begin to process what's taking place. And since I'm not going to go in, into length at explaining that in brief, I just refer our listeners to the book of Hebrews, where Hebrews talks about how Christ became the perfect sacrifice through suffering and his obedience in that. And he was heard because of his loud cries and tears. So there's, those things are not at odds with each other. But it speaks to how we have to think about this going forward. Well, even that particular example you're giving in John, how, how much of John is spent on Jesus speaking of the unity of the Son and the Father? Right. That, I mean, that is right. definitely a theme of the book of John. Right, right. So when we think about the incarnation and kenosis, the self-emptying is Jesus willingly setting aside the things that rightly should have been his as God. For example, we see when he's born, the Magi come and they worship. The angels appear, you know, declaring the praises of God. The shepherds, they come, you know, worship. But when he's before Pilate, that in and of itself is humiliation. Pilate should have been before him. Same thing with Herod. Same thing when the, the crowds are questioning him and barraging him and, and throwing up all kinds of accusations at him. All the, the kind of dialogue, dialogue and theological argumentation he gets in with other people. None of that should have been happening. Everything he said should have been immediately believed and received because of his divine nature. That's an example of the self-emptying, the tiredness, the hunger, um, the sleepiness. All those are effects of the physical world, and they are examples of, of this next principle that we've really got to press into to rightly get a good understanding of kenosis, of incarnation. There is nothing in Jesus that is sinful. And so because there's nothing in him that is sinful— There is nothing in him that is subject to the effects of sin. Which means sleep, eating, and drinking are not, those needs are not an effect of sin. When God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, he gave them food. Eat this, right? And so, and and then work this way. So bodily existence was created at the beginning. And that bodily existence had limitations to it. It needs to eat to survive. It needs to drink. It needs to sleep, etc. It is so. Those things are not the an effect of sin. Also, Eve, in her perfection, in her human perfection, is able to be deceived. Right, and Adam, in his human perfection, is able, with the power of his will to rebel. Christ is the last Adam. He's the second Adam, as Paul says. He is born of the Blessed Virgin 
without any taint of sin on him, and he is born without any effect of sin in him. So, is it possible for him to be deceived? No more than Adam could have been deceived. No more than deception can prey upon a human nature. And we see that war happen in the desert. When the devil comes to tempt him and attempts to deceive him, and Jesus shows himself greater than Adam by arguing theologically with the devil and then dismissing the devil from his presence. <laughs> you can leave now. You say, you say, you know, away from me. He dismisses him. So all of that to say, there is nothing in human nature that can be deceived as far as Christ is concerned, because he's perfect. The hunger, the tiredness, the thirst, etc. Those are natural limitations that are not an effect of the fall. Now, when they're not met and the body goes into sickness and to, to death and decay, well, that that's, becomes part of the effect of the fall. But that there is some sort of uh, intrinsic dependency that we have with the natural world as physical creatures, that was established at the beginning. Now, the limitations and the ramifications of that are never fully explained or pressed in the Genesis narrative, but we know that they're there. How that ultimately would manifest itself, I don't know. That becomes speculative in an unnecessary way. But as far as Christ is concerned, because he's human and he is without sin and without the effects of sin, I mean, the only effects of sin that Jesus experiences and suffers is the sinfulness of others. And there's an example of the self-emptying where he yields to experiencing the evil of the power of sin in other people. You know, when they strike him and they argue with him and when they kill him. So we can see that that, that stuff's uh, played out more specifically through those various narratives and accounts. The term hypostatic union comes to mind in all this. Fully God, fully man. I mean, I think it's easy in this whole conversation to get lost in a place where you're either on the fully like God side and you diminish the, uh, he was fully man at the same time, or you go so hard towards the side of, oh, he was fully man, so he made mistakes, so he can't be fully God. But the hypostatic union is probably the central point of this whole conversation too, obviously. Well, yeah, we've been describing that without the, the term, the mm -hmm. theological phrase. I mean, I'm just putting it out there because yeah. it's a very helpful term to have. And you're talking about the, uh, the unnecessary, the words that help get rid of the, un, the, uh, the bad speculations. Mm -hmm. Right. It, that's a helpful term to rid ourselves of well, that stuff. Bishop Gore would have radically affirms the hypostatic union. He doesn't, wouldn't, wouldn't diminish that at all. The difficulty with modern concepts of the kenosis is that the word became human and the kind of human that he became was subjected to the effects of sin within himself. Even though he stays morally pure, he's still able to misunderstand. He's still uh, trained and educated as as a, as a ethnically Jewish man and is therefore influenced by the prejudices of the time and the era. Do you see the problem? And, and there's a, an intrinsic difference between a superhuman and God. Yeah. Because that's, that's where you ultimately end up at. What was he just a superhuman? Like in practicality, like what exactly is the end result? And so 
And to the answer to that, no, he's not. He's, uh, yeah, he's, uh, right. Correct. He's fully human without the stain of sin and the effects of it within himself, which means his perceptions are always true. His judgments are always right. And that precedes his anointing with the Holy Spirit. So the miracles and the, the miracle work he does as, as king of the Jews, all of that starts after his baptism when he receives the spirit in fullness. That's when he goes about doing his powerful, well, that's when he goes into the desert, defeats the devil, and then begins his powerful works, right? And so we can rightly attribute much of the miraculous work that Jesus does to the fullness of the spirit upon him. There's some commentators who think that in Mark's gospel, when John the Baptist prophesies that Christ will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. and, then, and then Christ himself is then filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism, what's being emphasized, because the phrase isn't used later on through Mark's gospel, what's being emphasized is that everything about Jesus is immersed in the person of the Spirit, and everything he goes and does so all of the interaction he has with other people is their experience and interaction with the Holy Spirit in an unmitigated way, which is why the power rolls out of him. In, some, in Luke's account, the people are trampling each other, rushing to touch him because the power just emanates out of him like a, uh, an invisible just glory that's healing the sick and, and casting out demons. And he's just standing there. And it's those kinds of accounts that spread, you know, that causes the woman with the issue of blood to touch his garments and and all those other kinds of things, or if I could just touch him, or if he could just touch me, kind of thing. All of that starts after his infilling with the Spirit. All we're talking about, we're not even talking about that. We're talking about from the moment the Word becomes flesh, from his entirety of experience, you know, from, from birth, really from conception until his death. Now, at, after the resurrection and the ascension, his humanity is is glorified. He's been, he was divinized from birth. I mean, so, you know, um, to touch him was to touch God. To hear him was to hear God in flesh. Hypostatic union is just uh, hypostatic from hypostasis, meaning person. So the, the, the person of the word and the person of the man person are put together to become one. And so it's a union of the two natures. Uh, and which is one person, Jesus of Nazareth. Got to make sure I'm not slipping on my technical theological lingo there. <laughs> You'll get a comment about that one. Yeah, yeah. I think the the difficult part, especially when looking at this, is to, how do you balance texts like Philippians two with like even the prologue of John? Because the you know the prologue of John the way that it talks about the word in as the incarnate word. I'm not saying it's different, but I think they're taking different emphases when they're um, writing. Like they're, they're very much so emphasized. Uh, eventually they get to obviously in, in Philippians two, they talk about the exaltation of the sun, mm -hmm. but you don't, we don't have, when you're reading John one, you don't necessarily get that you're really getting the emphasis on how great the incarnate word was. And so how do we put some like the John's words and even all throughout the gospels, how do we rightly divide that truth with what Paul is saying in Philippians? 
I'm not sure I'm following you because I don't I don't see a discrepancy or even a a contrast uh, as much as I do an emphasis because I think John's prologue, while it is highlighting the divinity of the word, the absolute divinity of the word, and how he's become flesh, woven through all of that is how in his incarnate state, not only was he rejected by his people in his physical ministry, he's still rejected by them in his exalted glory, which I think is what's happening uh, in Philippians. When Paul is concluding the discussion there in, in Philippians 2 about the kenosis, and then the contrast to kenosis is pleruma, the fullness. You know, he, Christ is exalted to the highest spot and everything will bow before him. He's the fullness of God in bodily form, he says to the Colossians. Everything bows to him then because it's exercising its will not to do it now. And I think John's kind of getting around to the same thing. And I think John weaves that through various narratives. For example, when they come to arrest the Lord in Gethsemane, and he says, who are you looking for? And, he, and they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And they fall down. Mm -hmm. That's not in the other accounts. No, it's not. So I think there's the statement that he, he is yielding himself to their will because it's the will of the Father all through the process of his, his earthly ministry. This, this whole concept of the divinization of matter, the physical body of Jesus, is a substantially important topic when we start to think about what the church is, how we become part of the church, how the church is sustained and nourished, and how creation itself will be redeemed. Because Christ has principally done it already. And then he makes all that he has done available through the sacraments because the sacraments are extensions of his own person of his own being in some shape or another some form right in the form of god in the form of you know of a man well in the form of bread and wine there's the body and blood in the form of the water there's the unity of death and resurrection with him in the form of the imposition of hands there's the priest and the deacon and the bishop sharing in his his Christ's own uh, high priesthood, etc. We can go on down the line through that. Kenosis, if, if the kenosis is miscalibrated, if our doctrine of kenosis is miscalibrated so that Christ can be subject to error and he can make erroneous statements, then we by default then start to say that the work of the Holy Spirit can be subject to error. We can say that the compilation of the books of Scripture can be subject to error. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that there's an, an equal line here. Otherwise, we end up with the infallibility of the papacy or the infallibility of something else within the church. And that, 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 that kind of takes the principle and skews it off in, in another incorrect perspective in our humble Anglican opinion as opposed to our Roman brothers. But <laughs> the, when we get the, the kenosis incorrect, we go back and we retro the whole of Christian history. And we redefine Christian history because we've redefined the principal character in all of human existence, which is God himself in human form as a human, Jesus of Nazareth. So we've got to make sure that as we're hearing all the chatter about how it is that God became human and what it was like for him to be human, 
we do not import our fallen human experience and say that was Jesus's because it wasn't. He was different. He's categorically distinct. And in his distinctness, as the head of the new creation that God has created, Christ has done, the spirit through the sacraments ties me to him, to his own being, to his own person, and nourishes my relationship to him so that I become like him and he does not become like me. He doesn't become like my generation. He doesn't become like my ethnic group. He doesn't become like my nation or my era of history. It's not that way. It's the other way around. And so when we retro back on the incarnation, on the kenosis, and we say, well, this is him emptying himself of divinity so he can fit into a body, we're missing the massive emphasis of the Athanasian Creed, which says, no, no, it's, it's subsistence in the other way. It's that the human nature is caught up into the divine. And so we see humanity fully realized for what it was supposed to be, not only in his physical existence while he walked and ministered on the earth, but also in its ultimate realization in his glorification uh, now at the Father's right hand. And we see that that is truly the emphasis of Scripture by reading even the promises to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, where he says, To him who overcomes, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne. So his whole work is not just reconciliation to the Father, but the restoration of that reconciliation. In that reconciliation, restoring humanity to its fully intended purpose. So what the law and the prophets and the Psalms commanded to be done as a means of tutelage and instruction to pull humanity out of its bondage to the to you know devilish tyranny, the gospel fulfills by giving us the very nature of Christ Himself. And if we make the manhood, the div- the divinized manhood of Jesus, something less than perfect, then we will become something less than perfect. We'll excuse it. We'll redefine mm-hmm. it. We will define our own definition of perfect. We'll go back and we'll say that there's a there's some other reason, usually through a contemporary lens, but there's some other reason Jesus picked 12 men to be his disciples. There's some other reason that Jesus called the woman, the Syrophoenician woman, you know, a dog. There's some other reason why Jesus did X, Y, or Z, something that modern readers are very offended by. Well, the Lord has no problem offending people. He does that all the time in the Gospels. And he has no problem breaking social norms when he thinks when they're wrong, not when he thinks they're wrong, because whatever he thinks is true. Well, I mean, I think that underscores a point that's embedded within a lot of the conversation we've already been having, which is in plain speech, God doesn't need you like to be God, right? Not that he doesn't love you. He just doesn't need you to be God. At the same time, like we need him. We need it. You know what I'm saying? We need him for life and everything. So like kind of what you're saying is mm-hmm. that, that what I'm getting is just that sometimes within theologizing, we find ourselves in places to where we're prone by our human nature to misunderstand things, like, uh, like our own fallen human nature to misunderstand yeah, things. Our whole disposition is misunderstanding. And then define them as, okay, how can I put myself through theology's lens, like, how can God be more like me? That's what ends up happening. Right, right. Well, and I think the other interesting thing about this 
but with kenosis, this this topic in particular is that it's it's exactly that. It's theologizing it in many ways. It seems um, theoretical, and I'm not going to say insignificant, but it's like it's the so what factor that you're asking in all of this. Because let's say I've heard people have various ideas on the kenosis on on what exactly is happening, but they would still say Jesus was a perfect sacrifice, and what he did was completely insufficient. The end result is yes, we are we are saved. He he was it was a perfect sacrifice and all that he did where we start to see the true impact of what happens here. And even your perspective of kenosis is what, what about us? Where do, where do we end up in this entire situation? What does life look like for the Christian? What does life look like for the church? And you were definitely um, hitting on that. And I think you can only um, empty so much or have so much a perspective on the nature of the incarnate Christ and what exactly that balance looked like before you begin to remove some of the standards and emphasis for us. Well, because he didn't become human just to die. Exactly. That's very, that's so pragmatic and reductionistic. Right. Even though in the creed, we go from his birth to his death. That's not, we're not skipping everything else in the gospels because they don't matter. Creeds are not designed to say everything. They're designed to encapsulate. I was, I'm going to get into this on Sunday morning um, because, of, because of, of epiphany. But here's a perfect time to bring up some of these points as, as well for those who don't get to attend our church on Sunday. You know, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't going to, but because of what you just mentioned, I need to tie it together. The incarnation which includes kenosis, right? I mean, that's how it has to happen, is an act of God. It is singularly an act of God that is perpetual. Jesus is still Jesus. He's still the son of the Blessed Virgin Mary, still of the seed of David, okay? He's 100% male. Jesus of Nazareth is still fully human and fully God. There's no kenosis anymore but he's fully God. He's in fullness. Okay. As the incarnation is a singular act of God, every act of Jesus is a redemptive act. Everything he does is an act of redemption and everything he says is salvific. It's doing something to heal some aspect of humanity and creation. This has been known by the church forever. You ever seen one of these? Yeah, Aiden showed me that last week. What do, do you know what that what that picture is right there? That's a picture of the heart of Christ. Yeah, the Sacred Heart. Sacred Heart. Sacred Heart. Yeah. Right. And there's devotions all through Christian history to the Sacred Heart. Now, for a lot of Protestants, that's weird. Like, why, why would you sense? have a devotion to Jesus's heart? I mean, you're, you're, you're running into a lot of thoughts that I've had privately right now. Yeah. Like, why would you do that? Why would you, why would you do, do that for you know, Jesus's heart? Well, without getting into the, to the interplay of devotional practices and where that stuff comes from, it's that and many other things are rooted in this. Everything about him is redemptive. And everything he does is an act of redemption. It's a divine act. In the Great Litany... And if you were to open up the 2019 Book of Common Prayer on page 92, and you can take this all the way back to the first edition that Cramer put out before he put out the prayer book, 
which was from the litanies that was being prayed already by the church. Notice the, the preposition here, okay? Because theology is bound up in language. It's principally bound up in language. Language is very important. By the mystery of your holy incarnation. By your holy nativity and submission to the law. By your fasting, by your baptism, fasting, and temptation. Good Lord, deliver us. The act of the incarnation and then the acts of Jesus' birth, the nativity, his life of submission to the law, his baptism, his fasting, and his temptation, his experiencing the fullness of human existence, and all of the various things within that that he endured are salvific acts. So what happens when you begin to pray and to meditate and to spiritually interact with Jesus on the basis of his baptism? of his fasting, of his submission to the law. Again, in the litany, by your agony and bloody sweat, by your cross and passion, by your precious death and burial, good Lord, deliver us. Same set of questions. What happens when you interact with him on the basis of his agony and bloody sweat? If you observe the church calendar and you celebrate Holy Week, you are interacting with that principally liturgically. You're, that's what the, the liturgy is the enfleshment. It's the embodiment through the rituals, through the ceremonies of Christ's living and dying. That's, that's what constitutes us as a community. The liturgy is what constitutes us as a community. And the liturgy is built around a common creed confession. Okay. And then the next one. By your glorious resurrection and ascension, by the sending of the Holy Spirit, by your heavenly intercession, and by your coming again in power and great glory. That hasn't even happened yet. His coming again in great glory, his, his return. But in the litany, we're already appealing to him through uh, prolepsis on the basis of the future event. The powers of the age to come, as Hebrews says, we're, we, we are seeking you for the powers of the age to come to visit us now. All of this is happening. All of this is the basis for our petition and our praying because of the incarnation, which is kenosis. He submits to the law. Why should he submit to it? He's the one that gave it. But chew on that question for a second mm -hmm. itself there, because there's no standard outside of God. There's no standard above God or beyond God. So whatever he does and says, that is what is right and what is good. And so when God becomes human and he is fully human, and that fully human nature is not subject to sin. Everything that he says and does is right and good. When Jesus gets frustrated with the apostles and he sighs, how long must I be with you? That is a right and a good statement. And somebody can say, well, God doesn't feel like that. Go back and read the book of Exodus. Mm -hmm. Moses, I'm going to kill them all. Yeah, last time I checked, there was a there was an account where Moses was interceding for the people of Israel. Yes, yes, because the Lord was fed up. That speaks radically to us. And that's what Paul's doing in Philippians 2. As soon as he gets done talking about this, he goes into verse 12. My, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but how much more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So there's your will and God's will that need to be in sync together because that's what happened in Jesus. He's referring to everything he's just talked about in the beginning of chapter two. He says, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Christ is at work in us so that our unruly wills become governed by his good one. So that the things that he did in his incarnate state are the things that we do and we become in our own generations instead of retroacting backwards and redefining him by our own standards. One, that's not going to work. And two, every time the church goes to do it, she ends up making categorical mistakes, fundamental mistakes that lead some into apostasy, some into heresy, uh, some into schism. And again, that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, that's the warning all through the pastoral epistles anyway, not the past, the Pauline, the epistles of the New Testament. That's the warning all through it. We see that in the councils of the church. Why they guard so jealously the doctrine of Jesus, who he is. Kenosis addresses this. You know, I think you bring up a, an excellent point there. That's been one of the things for me that has um, impressed me or almost been I guess, shocking to me in my own walk of sanctification and is that it's no longer just I'm able to not do the things that I want to do is that the things that I want to do have changed. That's like the, the shaping of the will that that is, that's something completely different because realistically, I'm not saying it would be easy or that it would be 100% certain, but you could stop doing something if you tried hard enough. But yeah. the reshaping of the will is one of the most powerful things, not just theoretically and theologically looking at this, but practically. Right. Like, thank you, Lord, that you, you have shaped me. You've given me the opportunity to, to have your will. Right. Right. And well, unless anybody thinks that we're stretching what's going on in Philippians, Paul's very next point, starting in Philippians 2.17, is when he brings up Timothy as an example. Uh, he says, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, service is, is liturgy there in the Greek, I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded. The mind that was in Christ, the mind that was in God, be of one mind. Paul's emphasizing all of this stuff to the Philippians, and he's saying, Timothy, here's your example. Here's the physical embodiment. Here is the icon of what you're supposed to be when he's sending Tim Timothy to them. He says, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. You see how he's referring back yes. to the Christ him, mm -hmm. but you know, his proven character that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself will also come shortly, uh, shortly. And he goes on and he mentions a couple other guys, Epaphroditus, and then in chapter three, contrasts the mind of Christ, these living examples with the Judaizers. And who are the Judaizers? Those who are trying to please God on the basis of their own works, not on the basis of conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Kenosis. 
kenosis. Kenosis is, in, for us, kenosis is not we, where we can set aside divine prerogatives. No, we don't, we don't have it. Kenosis is where we set aside the rights that are ours for the sake of serving others so that they can come out of their own state of sin and bondage. That's what kenosis looks like for the church, when the church serves, which is, I mean, that's the diaconate. What is a deacon? A deacon is the man who has been ordained to be amongst us as one who serves, whose entire life within the church is a reflection, like Timothy and Epaphroditus here, of Jesus Christ serving in ways that he doesn't have to, but he does it, one, because it's the will of the Father, and two, because it's how he reconciles sinners to himself. It's how he sanctifies the saints that want to be more uh, aligned with his heart. And then it's how, you know, ultimately he'll share in Christ's resurrection power and glory. And we run into a problem in, in our Protestant circles because we just assume because we made a confession of faith that everything's fine. We're going straight to heaven and there's no problem. And I made a confession of faith in Jesus and I'll get around to being baptized if I think I should, or I got baptized and I'll, I'll obey him when I feel like I can. I mean, the Lord understands my weakness. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. St. Paul is very clear when he says in chapter three, all things that were gained to me, I count as loss. He says in verse 10, that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, so that if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul doesn't even count his own resurrection as something that's sure and fixed. He's still basing that resurrection that he's hoping for on his continued conformity to Jesus, which for Paul is his own kenosis. It's his own, as he says here in 2.17, I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and liturgy of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. He's able to say that. And where is he saying it from? He's saying it from prison. And he's, and he's trusting that their prayers will get him out of jail. He's already living a life of kenosis of service to the church. And in so doing, it's service to the Lord. And he doesn't take that for granted to mean I'm going to rise and shine like a star in the resurrection. I've got to continue in that conformity. And there are plenty of examples of people who didn't. Judas, even though they still maintained power and authority. And so kenosis is really, really important. And the active incarnation is a divine act. And then all of the acts of the incarnate Christ are salvific, redemptive acts that are things that he communicates to us through the sacraments so that we can participate in the fullness of his life in hope of the resurrection. Maybe that maybe went a little long. I don't know. But I hope that that kind of really helps reset some of the frustrations. No, and I think that's interesting. I mean, we're really, we're hitting the highs and the lows of the practical implications of the kenosis because you're talking about Paul and how his, the immediate context there in the text is that yeah. now he gets to be emptied out. Now he, now he doesn't take the prerogatives that he could. And, but, but on the other side, it is, well, because Christ came and lived this life there, there is, um, we were able to live in the fullness of God because he caught humanity up. So, I think that's it's really interesting. We're hitting both sides of that mm -hmm. because if you only hit on one of those, it's it really changes your your Christian walk and your Christian perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He says in two eight about the Lord being found in appearance or form as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, 
even the death of the cross, right? And then Paul says about himself in Philippians 3, 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, saying, I have not gone to the depths of service like the Lord Jesus, but I'm pressing with all that I can, forgetting all the things that should give me privilege and excuse not to, so that I might attain him in his fullness in that death with him, so that I can rise like him. He is pursuing Christ with such a a magnificent uh, brilliance that Timothy follows suit, Epaphroditus follows suit. And if you want to read somebody in different language, that's just as, as intense, but different language, and the different language is what usually catches our attention. Read St. Ignatius. Mm-hmm. Because when Ignatius of Antioch starts to describe to the Romans how he's going to become the wheat of God and wants to be crushed by no. the teeth of the lions, he is echoing, he is rearticulating Paul's own passion for Christ, which is Christ's passion for the Father and for the church in his own kenosis and suffering and death. And once that is captured and been apprehended by us, then we throw off the shackles not just the sin that so easily entangles, as Hebrews 12 says, but we live in active fellowship with that cloud of witnesses, and they encourage us, they, they exhort us, they strengthen us with their fellowship to be like Paul, because Paul's in that cloud, to go with Christ in the fullness of kenosis, setting aside prerogatives, not setting aside nature, but setting aside prerogatives so that we can fully share with Jesus in his suffering to be aligned with him in his resurrection. That is is transformation. Mm-hmm. That's theosis. That's holiness. It's far beyond rules and regulations. That's Judaism. That's Paul's whole point. That's, that's, that's Philippians 3. But once I start to throw off everything that could be something for me to excuse myself from service, once I realize when I hear these words, you don't need to get up and pray. You don't need to stay awake and pray. You don't need to read, read and study the scripture. You don't need to fast. You don't need to give any extra. That sounds a whole lot like those people around the cross. If you are the son of God, come down. End your suffering. End your sacrifice. End your self-emptying. Show us your divinity and we'll believe. And he reveals his glory by enduring and then dying. It makes me think about the passage from the Gospels where Jesus was talking about if any man would come to follow me, he would he must deny himself. Yeah. Carry his cross. Um, Luke 9, 52, where he's specifically talking to someone. He says, you know, if you're not even, if those who come and follow me don't look back and stuff, that, that, that nature, I can't remember the exact terminology. But he's, ter- he's talking about people that came to him and says, okay, Jesus, I can't follow you because of, no, my parents. Yeah, the guy I can't follow farm, you the because of all my farm yeah, and all this other right, stuff. I got to right. go plant my vineyard. And he says, no one puts their hand, hands to the plow and looks back is fit for service and qualified to follow me. Yeah. It just reminds me of those now statements. You think about that. He's not talking about special Christian service. He's not talking about somebody who gets called into holy orders. He's talking about being a disciple, being numbered amongst the church. That's the call to baptism is to forsake the world, the flesh, and the devil. I mean, you met, you also just mentioned uh, 
to take up the cross daily, right? When you cited that from the lips of the Lord. What does Paul say in Philippians 3? Many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Not of Christ, but the cross of Christ. And so all of the gospel preaching that takes away the cross is an enemy of God. It's something else. It's a deformed gospel. And when we say, uh, as Paul does here, takes away the cross of Christ, we don't mean that they don't mention it or they don't talk about it, but they restrict the cross to Christ. And not it's not something that we as the body have to bear each in our own way. That's kenosis. And it's only, it's in proportion to our kenosis. It's that proportion that determines the glory of our resurrection. That's all Paul's whole point in Philippians 3. Now, you mentioned Ignatius, and that's, that is, um, that's your saint. Yes, that is. That's, that's the, Adam's patron. That, that's the, the icon that. Every morning he gets up and says, Saint Ignatius, or a pro me. No, no, he quotes, well, it, he quotes, make me wheat. Ground me Legit, like. Yeah, no, like I got that, you. When I read that, when I was looking and I was reading through and I read that, that's, I'm like, that right there. Yeah. And his icon is literally two lions gnawing on him. Yeah. And reading into his life, you talk about not taking the prerogatives that you could. There were people literally trying to get him out of jail. Yeah. Get him, and instead, he uses the opportunity to go to his death as a way to visit the churches and to, to build up the, the church. Yeah. Completely yeah, different. Even looking at, I think of people like Cyprian. Mm-hmm. The, when the, pers- the first wave really that he, he flees, the second one, he doesn't take the prerogative. Instead, he, embra- he embraces And that's where death. you need wisdom. You're right. That's where you need wisdom. There are times to flee from one city to the next. That's what the Lord says. Mm-hmm. And there's times not to. How do you know how to do that? That takes us into a different conversation on I mean, wisdom and things. The but Apostle Paul had the same thing going on too. Yeah, he gets lowered uh, through the Damascus wall. But then, but then, in, the the other, then in the, like his last journey to Rome and all the appeals that he went process that he went through yeah well this you're you're right the the, the kenosis here is not you're not the lord's not calling us to be doormats Mm -hmm. because even when the crowd goes to throw him off the cliff after the the luke 4 account he doesn't yield to that does little it's not time he you know he just get him away (laughs) part the red seas all all that to say there there is in the lord's life and in ours this sacramental mingling of suffering and power. Mm-hmm. And Paul has that all through his letters. We carry about in our bodies the dying of the Lord Jesus so that the power, the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus can also be manifest. Because Christ is not a dead savior. He's alive. He's reigning Amen. in yeah. power. And the kenosis in the church is when he is extending his own nature, his own grace, because that's what grace is. His grace is his nature, which is his power, his virtue really coming to us enabling us to endure things that we couldn't necessarily endure without. And in the process, transfiguring us, giving us more of his virtue. And then also we participated more of his power. It doesn't mean that you maybe are going to heal the sick or cast out demons more often, but it also may mean that you are, which is why he's sending you through the particular kinds of trials, because the refining is to conform you more to his image. So he can entrust to you more of his own Power, for lack of a better phrase. And, and that's what you just said there. That's exactly what came to mind, is that as we are leaning on the Lord through the suffering and through difficulty and intentionally emptying ourselves to, to be more reliant upon him, that changes the way in which we act 
Oh, in those, those powerful moments because it changes our perspective because we know that it wasn't us and that the glory is the Lord's. Yeah. I, I think of this is kind of humorous a little bit. I was given uh, a word of advice um, as a teenager. It was you and um, Pastor Robbie. And they said, don't touch three things. Don't touch God's gold, God's glory, or God's girls. That's right. And I, I say that in, in jest, but the idea is, I think as you're going through those things and the, the, through almost intentional emptying, it changes your perspective. You don't feel entitled to some of these things. You know that is the Lord's glory. It's not yours. I mean, for me, I think the one takeaway that would summarize pretty much everything here, like in most, the most practical way, is one. it's a literal invitation for every single one of us to, in moments of moment, that we're invited to, to just meet with Jesus in prayer through every little, small suffering. One of, the, one of my favorite things that you've ever told me, and I hang on to this all the time, it's just a small nugget, and I've been really good, not something dumb. No, this is great. It's a great nugget. It's it's not it's not one of those uh, Lord of the Rings nuggets. Buffet your body. No, <laughs> no. Um, it's one where you tell me it's you. How it's one time you described how you get up and you're getting ready for uh, service on Sunday, mm-hmm. and how you start to feel a certain way, and it's like immediately as soon as you feel that, you start to pray, mm-hmm. and I know and. Um, every time in the past week or so, like even in the smallest moment where I'm thinking or thinking something, you know, I've been taking it as an invitation. Okay, Jesus, I'm praying through this. This is what I'm feeling right now. Like, this is where I'm at. Yeah. What do you want to do? Like last night, I had problems going to sleep. I was like, okay, Lord, I'm going to try to pray for what I can. Okay, I'm praying for my family. Like, is there anything else you want me to pray for right now? Yeah. Is there anything that I need to like really be praying for? And I wasn't the only one who had issues. Like my entire, the entire house, my mom had problems sleeping last night, you know? So what I'm saying is the practical thing of this is within this kenosis conversation is that's the practical way that we step into there. Now, obviously there's, those are, I'm defining specific moments where like you're pricked in like your emotions and your feelings and your sufferings in the day to like to pray. But obviously the, the way that we have it as Anglicans is we have the, Daily office mm-hmm. is like the morning, evening, comp line, right? In that capacity, yeah. I mean, those are more practical ways to do that. Which even in those, they have, especially the morning and evening, they have specific times for us to like interject, mm-hmm. intercessions, thanksgivings, and such. Yeah, we want our whole lives, our whole beings, to be part of God's active work of redemption. But that's we. we, we and he's giving us the will for that. That's work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Um, what, what you're mentioning about on Sundays, what, I, I observed this years ago, years ago, um, pastoring, that uh, if I, when I get up on a Sunday and I get ready to go, I'm getting ready to go to, to, to worship. If I'm feeling sick or discouraged or excessively tired, whatever, I learned long ago that that's probably happening to other people in my church. Mm-hmm. And so I just start praying for them. And if the Lord would give whoever needs those graces to get through whatever those hurdles are. And that's not just on Sunday, but that's, that's generally speaking. And uh, for those pastors out there who maybe that happens to you and you're like, why does this happen to me regularly? Maybe it's an opportunity to be praying for that for other people so that they're able to, to be at worship with you. Um, 
But all that to say, and I think we've we've hit this topic enough to uh, hopefully reset according to Christian orthodoxy and Christian practice and history, a much better understanding of kenosis than the stuff that gets peddled today as if Jesus was just, even though they'll confess him as God with the creed, they will reduce him practically to a guy that they can reinterpret to fit their own, you know, political and philosophical ends. May the Lord save us from doing it ourselves. Amen. Amen. That'll be all for today. So just, I'm going to throw this one out there. Please, if you have not already, like, comment, subscribe, share. Le- yes, share, share some of these episodes or the pockets itself with your friends, your family, your friendly skeptics. And uh, if you have any of the further comments or questions or concerns, you can email them to Father Daryl at Daryl at ascensionwv.org. I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl.